Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for a couple of years now, but for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. This episode is largely concerned with wood, so it's really wonderful that it's been sponsored by the American Hardwood Export Council, or AHEC for short. The organisation has just opened its latest project in collaboration with Wallpaper Magazine at London's Design Museum. Discovered Designers for Tomorrow brings together 20 emerging designers from around the world to create a piece of furniture or an object that investigates their relationship with touch, reflection and strength during the Covid crisis. Among other things, the brief asks them all to think about coping with isolation and the changing relationship between the physical and the digital at a time when so many people have been forced to communicate through Zoom. The only real stipulation was they had to work with one of four timbers from the American hardwood forest. Red oak, American cherry and hard and soft maple. I've been helping out on the project for most of the summer and I reckon the results are rather wonderful. It's well worth a visit to the Design Museum to check it out. Today I'm hugely delighted to welcome Pete Hein Eck onto the show. The world-renowned Dutch designer made his name when he graduated from the Academy for Industrial Design Eindhoven with a cupboard made from scraps of wood he found in a lumber yard. That was in 1990. He set up his own practice three years later, creating furniture that, in his words, was designed from available possibilities, with pieces using waste from other processes, and sometimes waste from that waste. Products are created around the materials the practice has in stock, whether that be enormous wooden beams or metal pipes, and the machines it possesses. Craft is vitally important to everything he's produced, and production is at the heart of his enormous studio in Eindhoven. It includes a shop, restaurant, art gallery, and most recently, a hotel. During his career, the designer has also branched out into architecture, starting by creating extraordinary garden outhouses and expanding into pieces of urban planning, as well as collaborating with brands such as Leff and Ikea. We've caught up with him as he's preparing to exhibit once again at the Salonia Milan, arguably the world's most important design festival. Pete Hein, Thank you very much for doing this. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, was that all reasonably accurate? Yeah, it's okay. I didn't find any. Uh, although the hotel has to be opened, it will be one of. Oh, it's not open yet. Yeah, ah. it, it has been postponed uh, because uh, of Corona, and actually, it's, maybe it's the other way around, like it is in the world. So we were not ready, but it wasn't that bad that we were not ready. So we didn't. Uh, put all our efforts we could in it. And now uh, we probably open one year later than we uh, thought we would, <laughs> which is not so bad in this case. So next month is the yeah, grand opening. Yeah, yeah. How many rooms have you got? 13. So it's a very 13. small, uh, small hotel. But the hall where the rooms are feels like a real official hotel, but it's only one, <laughs> one level. So a, a mm. normal hotel has like 10 levels like that, but we have just one level with a classic <laughs> hotel configuration. That's quite nice. We've caught you just between the August holidays and then the all-new September Design Festival in Milan. Usually it's held in April. Are you showing again at Rosanna Orlandi in the space that you have at the back there? Is that, is that yeah, where you'll be? Yeah, we will be on the top floor as we were like last five years. Kind of tucked away a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we started uh, at Rosanna Orlandi's when she started almost in the, what's now the restaurant. And slowly we moved the, through the whole building. <laughs> and since like five years, I think we're at the top floor. And for us, it's actually the best floor we could have because a lot of people arrive there because it's in the back of her store. 
where most people take a look at. And we have the advantage, at least we think that's an advantage, that we only get dedicated guests and um, it's not like walking around searching for something else. Mm. So the mm. people who come are really interested and they come uh, often in a straight line to us if they come for what we present. So, so in general, we're very happy to be in that specific place at, a, at a, well, what is it? It's a factory, but it's a, it's a huge place and uh, very chaotic, so, which I yeah. actually love. But I'm glad you asked what it is because I was trying to work out, I was going to call it an emporium, but I'm not sure that's right either because it's not really a shop. It's, well, I don't know what it is really, it's, but it's, it's a fascinating place. Will you have new pieces on display? Is that important in Milan? Normally, it's really important. We never really focus on showing new stuff, but our rule is we show what's happened between last Salona and this. So normally it's one year between April and April, and we take the new objects we uh, created. And often it means that we want to finish something in the very end. So just at the last possible moment. And in this case, we had more than two and a half years of product development. And also because we are working on the hotel along the way, if you start thinking about the hotel, you need a lot of uh, items. So we, we designed a series of objects for the hotel and we'll show it during the design week in Holland because then it's uh, the opening of the hotel more or less. But we took a toilet paper holder uh, with us to Milan as a <laughs> stronghold uh, <laughs> for the hotel uh, presentation. Very good. Very good. But we made uh, a lot of other objects and we take a kitchen, lamps, and uh, actually one really new lamp, but it's uh, something we communicated already in different sizes from the one we show now. And we have a watch we uh, developed with Lef Amsterdam, which is brand new also. So we have two products which are like launched at this very moment. And most of the other products we made last two and a half years. And this is only right. a selection because we made much more. Yeah, you are prolific. There's no question. And I was intrigued because I get your newsletter where you spent your summer. In my holiday homes in Marvelous. Yeah. Tell me all about this is in the Dordogne, I think, and it's a converted mill. Tell us a little bit about this because it's taken 10 years to create, right? Yeah, I bought it. Actually, I didn't bought it, but I made an agreement with what is a friend of me now to buy it. it this happened five years later and we started in 2006 and I think we finished the whole complex as it, it will be never really finished, but that it was finished and impossible to sleep and eat and drink there. So we had two houses finished in 2015. So it's sort of 10 years it took. But in between, we bought this place here. So it's not really fair to, uh, to say it took 10 years. But altogether, after buying it, it needed some time and also some thinking. I'm happy that it took 10 years because, well, there's a, a lot of things to talk about because uh, the whole process was quite interesting. And the mill itself is one of my most, uh, I think, one of my biggest projects. And uh, I learned a lot about it myself, about myself. So, oh, that's that's an interesting one. What did you learn about yourself during the process? Yeah, well, it, it took 10 years. This is one of the things which uh, in my work is very important. And I realized it along this time is that if I want something, I don't really actually focus on the cost because if it costs a lot, I just take more time. And then it, in the end, it, it will succeed anyhow until now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not sure if this will be always true. But for, in this case, it took 10 years. And because I, I took this time, it was possible to make it in terms of finance, but also in terms of intellectual space. You know, you need some time 
in your mind to think in a good way about problems and solutions and to really adopt a place and an environment. You can't do that in a short time, at least, of course, when you get older, you get better at it, but it improves by taking time. And one of the things which was quite important for me is that I slowly realized by working there and living there and going on holidays and being there, I slowly realized the essence of the place apart from the fact that there is a small river because uh, which cost, you know, which was the reason to make a, a water mill there. Yes. Uh, but also the source of materials was very important. So, of course, they had wood from the forest because it's a very green environment. But they used the stones uphill because the river is along a rocky hill, very steep hill. And they got the stones from the hill, which tumbled <laughs> in the river, and they used the river to transport the stones to the dikes oh, okay. and the houses. Wow. So their way of transport was the river also in terms of constructing materials. And uh, the cast iron wheels, which were used to give the power to the mill, the water power, were uh, made in the forge, you know, like, uh, yeah. like where they make cast iron one kilometer upriver. So normally you would never be able to get such a, heavy wheels with a horse and wagon to this place but they had the river and an industry for cast iron upstream actually this was the reason for the wealth of the castle uh, and the mill was part of the castle property right so they made guns and and weapons for the french kings and made their money and because of that, this castle had the money to develop the mill and other the whole area. So it, the nature actually provided the materials and the reason to make a, a mill there. I realized that my work is very much dedicated to using the materials and techniques and craft which are available. And at that time, they didn't have a choice. But they just had to make it like that because otherwise you won't have a mill. You know, if you don't have water, if you don't have transport, if you don't have stones, you can't make a dike. And uh, so the dike is made on the rock bottom and not on the soil, which I found out because I was not so serious as they were 200 years ago. So you really need to be on the rocks to make a waterproof dike. And of course, you want to have a small dike with a huge uh, amount of water capacity. So they really selected this place with a lot of knowledge about technique and nature and so on, which I don't think we do as serious and thoroughly as they did at that time. They didn't have a choice, but because of modern times, we seem to be able to do what we want in the sense that you can use the materials you want, you can make everything waterproof, you can live where you want. Uh, because, for example, the house is also in the winter located at the place where the sun goes down, which is important if you don't have uh, heating, apart from some fire uh, places. So they knew if I build the home here, I'll have maximum sun during the winter. So they were so aware about what nature provided. And I think I'm working like that. I felt a parallel with, uh, with the mill, but I do it because of my own intuition and they had to do it because it was necessary to survive. And maybe it's still like that. Maybe we think we're free to choose materials and we think we're free to annoy or uh, uh, not think about nature and, uh, and not working with what's available, but uh, we can choose and do what we want, like a total freedom because it's possible. But maybe if you look at the 
footprint and the environment, we should see it as necessary that we work with what's around us. I was interested in the mill, well, for lots of reasons, but there are a number of themes that crop up in your work when you look at the press clippings on you. And one of the first that gets mentioned in all the pieces is this fascination you have with ruins. You toured England, I think, with your father as a child, looking at old castles. And as we say, we've, we've just done up this mill and the studio complex that you're talking to us from, which we'll come on to in a bit, I suspect, was a complete mess when you bought it. So what's the fascination with ruins? That's uh, something which also took time to realize. <laughs> so <laughs> you start with uh, being, uh, how do you call it, excited if you see a ruin. I was always... Uh, uh, very happy to see ruins and uh, from my very very childhood until now it has been a fascination and it, it's something which is never become less so if i see an old building or a ruin i start thinking and now of course i'm a designer and a professional working with this kind of uh, buildings or ruins or, or moments but when I was a child, it was, it was harmless, you know. It was just that I really loved it. And I realized along the way that if you look at a ruin, it provides the history so you can fantasize about how it was. But at the same time, you can also think about what you want to do with it or what it will be. So it's a sort of physical connection between the past and the future, which is for me actually uh, almost how I work. I always use what's there to make something new. Mm. And a ruin is, is like the, well, the best possible example for this moment. Was your father happy to take you to England to look at castles? Do you think this is a slightly curious obsession my son is developing? No, no, he, he, uh, he never complained. <laughs> 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 but, but he never complained anyhow. He, he all, also had to, to, to always tell the same story, more or less, from the child Bible. And I always want to hear the same story. And he never said, Pete, why again? He just, he just read it for me. <laughs> so I think uh, he knew that I like traditional things, you know, something which repeats all the time. It's a little bit mm. my, uh, my mind that I try to keep. Uh, uh, I like it when things are the same because there are enough things happening. So why not keep everything, if, if possible, the same? But you also talk about liking chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how creative chaos is. So there's a contradiction, is there not? Yeah, so maybe that's the reason why uh, I see life as something which is not controllable and I don't put a lot of energy in it, except that when uh, everything is sort of stable, then uh, the chaos has maximum space without damaging uh, <laughs> things. So, so for me, it's like uh, if every day is the same, there is enough to do. Can we talk about the Scrapwood series, Pete Hine, which uh, kind of made your name, really, I think it's fair to say. I mean, you graduated, as we said in the intro, from the uh, Academy for Industrial Design in Eindhoven with a cupboard made from reclaimed wood from a lumber yard. It was in 1990. So how did that come about? Legend has it it was because you were restoring a cabinet for your sister. Yeah. Is that true? That's how it happened. So I was there to look for old wood because I had to renovate a, an old cupboard, which you can't do with new wood. So I was just looking for the same kind of wood in a lumberyard. And in Holland, we have a huge tradition of recycling wood from architecture. So, and it's, of course, it's a small country. So if we build something 99% of the time, we have to take something away also. And if you go to France or in England, it's much more easy to build next to the old building, the new building. So you see a lot of new and old next to each other. 
although in Holland, in uh, agriculture, so um, uh, farmers do have these two host houses next to each other, the old one, which becomes a ruin, and the new one. But we have a tradition of demolishing buildings and recycling the materials. I think we've always done that. But until that moment, until uh, I actually made the design in 1989, uh, it was never used for domestic purposes. And I looked, uh, I was walking through the wood piles at this lumber yard and I thought, actually, I like this better than new wood. So why not use it? Because it's cheap mm. and it's available and it gave the opportunity to make a cupboard which can be made in series but each of them will be different, which was interesting, I thought, at that moment. So for me, the, the material and the characteristics of the material gave me the perfect starting point for a design. Mm. Mm. And, and I was able to process the wood in the workshop at school, which was also interesting for me because I didn't want to outsource and I didn't want to work with people who, after my degree, were not available. And I also knew that after graduating, I would start my own company with the same machines as at school. So if I was able to make those cupboards at school, I would also be able to make them later on when I started my company. Were you a good carpenter by that stage? Uh, I've always been quite handy. Uh, I think that's the way. So I'm, I have been always making stuff also from childhood, mm. from very small until now. I always make a lot. And uh, so for me, making things with my own hands was one of the starting points for my career and my company. I, I really like doing it myself. And I always take the fact that something has to be made as part of the design. So both the machines as the craft are quite important for what we do. For your process. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a story that I think I must have read in one of your own books. You've written a lot of books. You're a very prolific publisher as well. It's, it's fascinating. But uh, Heis Bakker was head of the department at the time when he graduated from Eindhoven. And there was going to be a show in Amsterdam rather than Eindhoven itself, uh, something you were opposed to and you refused to cooperate, it says in your book. So were you a bit of a rebel? Yes, I'm sure I still am. But not like Gijs. Uh, we had a, also a very nice uh, relationship, but we quarreled a lot. <laughs> <laughs> or I quarreled a lot and he let me, I think. But I think I'm, uh, I'm a rebel, but not to be a rebel. So it's not my goal. I'm not so easy to convince by somebody else. And the more authority, the less convinced I am. <laughs> so with Corona, it was a little bit <laughs> difficult. <laughs> well, that's interesting. How did Corona go? Because you have this huge organization. It must have been a very difficult 18 months. Yes, I know. We had uh, practical problems with the first part of the crisis when uh, the turnover went down. But after that, uh, it recovered. So we were only damaged the first part of the crisis and we had at that time uh, enough work so it was not so bad the restaurant was really bad because it has to close all the time and open close and so so there the problem was big but in holland like in most european countries the government were giving a lot of help not complete but enough to survive but actually we had a huge advantage by corona because i already wanted to or tried to change the spirit and uh, the way we produce in the company, we actually had 
production problems for years. And uh, it had to do with uh, the culture in the company, the way we uh, operate. Um, and I couldn't change it through the uh, last five, six years. It was impossible. It was a sort of cultural problem in the company. And at a certain moment in September last year, I even thought maybe I have to change everything or stop or I don't know how, but we, we can't go on like this because we lose money on almost everything we do. And our main thing in the company is production. So if you, if you fail in your main thing, you have a big problem. And we were happy to have the worst moment at the moment Corona came. So we were helped because we had very bad turnover by the government because of Corona. But part of it was just because we were very badly organized or not good working. And if things slow down when you're having a hard time, it's less hard. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. if things slow down when you're doing very well, you have a problem because all of a sudden... Did you have to lay people off? No, 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 we didn't. Okay. No, nobody. And then we had to change. And so I, it was quite dramatical, actually, for myself. And, uh, and a lot of people were talking to me like, well, you have to get rid of half of the employees and go on with the good half. And I said, okay, tell me which half, because I like them all. And of course, sometimes uh, you have a problem with one of the employees, but it was not the problem of individual uh, uh, employees. I, so I thought it's my own fault. It's, uh, it's, it's not, you know, if you have a company which is a production company and people are not focused on production anymore, then you did something wrong. So I communicated that um, I and the management team, but mostly myself, made a big mistake or I was not able to get the right focus. But now we had to change because going on like this wouldn't work. So I had some speeches to all the employees and also individual conversations, very short, like I called it three-minute conversations. And I asked everybody, can you change? Do you think it's necessary? And are you able to put your shoulders under it? And everybody was like, I can change and I can do much better and we should do it. And everybody was positive. And actually after that, it changed. We're much better focused on production and everybody is positive. And I think one of the reasons why they adopted this change was that there was insecurity of Corona because I tried it so many times. So I think we had a wonderful help from this crisis. <laughs> So what did you change? What was the fundamental key to the change that you're talking about? I think the fact that my conclusion was that I should be in charge of production instead of the team, which I've never been focused on production myself. It's always been done with a team. So I changed this to my responsibility, at least end responsibility. So in the end, they work for me and uh, we work together. So I made clear that we had to change something individually and as in a group. And I didn't blame them. I just said, I did it wrong. And now we're doing, everybody is doing it wrong. So let's change this and let's be focused on production. And uh, we made a few dramatic changes uh, also, uh, so like practical things so that everybody felt every day, okay, we're going to work now. So everything which was not focused on production, we stopped and everybody agreed to do that. And I think this insecure time provided the moment to make this change. And all the new people who came in last years and last year, they all came in a very positive environment. And that's also a big difference between now and five years, three years or four years ago. At that time, they adopted the wrong spirit. And now they come in very positive and are a part of the new Elan, you know, the new way of working. So I think we couldn't have had a more positive moment 
than this moment for us. Yeah. So how many people do you employ now? Uh, now it's, I think, around 80 in total. But uh, we always had 100, 110. Normally it's between yeah. 90 and 100, something like that. And do you enjoy the management side? Because classically, you know, a designer or an architect, they start out small, they get bigger, they have a machine they have to feed and they find themselves getting further and further away from the design or the creation side that they enjoyed. Do you find that? Have you found that? Actually, there's two answers. Mm. I design more than I've ever done because of this situation, because there's an organization helping me with all kinds of stuff. And the other thing is that I do like the organization and I do like working with people. So I asked somebody to help me uh, through this time. At least I asked him, uh, what should I do? when it was really bad. And he set up a whole, after a few weeks thinking, he gave me a lot of questions. And one of the questions he asked is exactly the same thing as you did, only more specific. He said, do you like working with your employees? And I said, yes, I love it. I, I love to work with the people around me and I love them. So for me, it's one of the qualities of having an organization is that you have people around you with whom you have to make like the best possible situation, but also the best possible product or uh, effort. Yeah, You know, yeah. You, you don't need to be successful specifically, but if you everybody is happy and doing his very best, the chance that it will be successful becomes bigger. And I like this part of the job very much. Because I read somewhere that you attempted to study economics at one stage. Is that true? Yeah, it was when I started after my, uh, how do you call it, uh, preliminary school or... Uh, yeah, foundation or something. So that, yeah, then I had to choose uh, what to study. And it was either furniture or design to become a furniture designer and, and manufacturer or economy uh, with the same goal. And I'm happy that I started uh, at the Design Academy because I was really a very bad designer. And uh, I'm quite good at economics, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure half of that is true. Um, because we talked about the structure of the company, but we haven't talked about the, the complex, the building itself. But, you know, it's hugely intriguing. In the first instance, Eindhoven, you kind of stayed after graduating You've been around the Eindhoven area, I think, ever since. What's the draw of Eindhoven? For me, the reason to stay here was the fact that there's a lot of space because a lot of industry left this area. Now, Philips is the biggest, but there's a lot of empty buildings which are affordable. So you can rent or buy for normal prices. And that was, for me, the major theme is that this is an environment where there's always been production. So the suppliers are here, the technique is here, the engineers are here. The infrastructure is here and the employees are here. The spirit in Eindhoven is really different from Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, they make their money with talking and in Eindhoven, they make their money with working. So, and I wanted to produce. <laughs> I talk myself a lot, <laughs> too much maybe, but uh, we needed to produce. So, so it doesn't make sense to have like uh, all the philosophs on the working area, you know, they don't talk but work. <laughs> when you bought the site... Did you have a plan immediately? Did you know that eventually you were going to have a hotel here? Or has the whole thing grown kind of organically as you've used the space? Now, a lot of people say that, uh, that the hotel was part of the plans in the beginning because they right. think they heard that, but it can't be like that. The halfway, so like five years after we opened, I think somewhere, it was the first time I thought about a hotel. But the reason to move to this place was that we wanted to have, in contrary to the place we had before, a place where the production facility 
and what we create around it would be a reason to come because we found out that more and more people were interested to visit us also from bigger distances. So even from France and Germany and Belgium and Swiss, people drove to us like for hours just to see what we were doing. So we knew that what we did, there was enough reason to come. So if you change then the location and the way you present everything into a, a welcoming open area, where it's even nicer to come and where you can eat something, then you actually give those people a nicer experience. And we also wanted to create a context around our own products to make it more easy to understand what we're doing, to make a complete world. And from that perspective, you might say, okay, the hotel is part of the plans from the beginning, but then in an abstract way. But later on, we thought, okay, if we add an hotel it will be even more complete. If you come to us now and you sleep in the hotel, then the whole experience is uh, from A to Z uh, covered. Completely so, immersed. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and that's the reason. And it's actually, uh, I can say already now, we set a step in this idea of what you can create uh, in terms of an environment uh, for people to be happy and to really feel what it is about in our point of view. So the hotel is not a classic design hotel, not at all. It's mainly extremely warm and open for people. And there's a lot of design, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of strange things. But the major theme is that I hope and I think it provides an environment where people really feel nice and comfortable and happy. Yeah, And it's inspiring because of that, because it's not like a prestige thing. It's only about... Sentiment about sensitivity, actually. For me, that's design. I, I actually don't want to make something beautiful for the picture. I want something which is nice to be or, or to use or to, you know, that it gives like a, an emotional feeling to people. Mm. You've talked about production being the, the most important element of what you do. And you've talked a little bit about your process and how it's based on the materials that you have in stock and the machines that you own. But I'm just wondering if we could take a, an example. I mean, I was quite intrigued by the book you've done on the Beam series, for instance, where you made all sorts of things out of a massive load of beams that you bought for reasons I don't... <laughs> Why did you buy all the beams? Uh, because I thought it was cheap. And it was actually. <laughs> the, the cube meters were very cheap. So, but, uh, well, it was dramatic. So the transport itself was more expensive than the beams. And then we found out that we didn't even have space for it. So I had to rent a whole, very big hole because it was an idiot amount of, of wood to stock it. And uh, we only used just a small part of it per year. So it, we had a collection almost without beams. But if you have like this amount of beams, you start thinking about it. So during the years, we finished this uh, stock. What have you made from all these beams? I mean, can you run through a, a short list maybe? Yeah, well, the beams table, beams cupboards, the longest table in the world, with uh, which at least I call it like that. It won't be the longest, but it was for a, a festival of 200 years, New York, uh, Amsterdam. And we made a table which should be transported in a container and it should be 150 meters or something. So we made it from the beams because we had a lot of beams. And uh, I made uh, beam vases of leftover parts. I made uh, beams cupboards, like a pile of beams. We made huge beams cupboards, which were in the end because they were impossible to process. And in the end, those cupboards became the most beautiful. 
really, really, really nice stuff. I think it took 10 years to get rid of the beams. Mm. <laughs> and there were also a lot of doors in the deal. So I got like 150 doors also. Yeah, I was going to ask you about doors because doors recur a lot in your work. I mean, in your architecture, in your cab, but a lot of cabinets and art pieces where doors end up kind of stuck on walls. What is it about doors that you enjoy so much? Yeah, I've, it's the same. It's it's again a childhood story. I don't think I told this uh, very often. But when I was a child, I went to, uh, on holidays, I always made pictures from doors. So I still do, actually. I don't do anything with it, but it, it, I've been fascinated by, for doors for, for a long time, from my childhood on. And then in 1992, one or two after my uh, graduation, a certain moment I thought if I take a door from the building and make a cupboard around it, it becomes uh, a very nice object uh, because it, you use something which people recognize in a different way. And then all of a sudden, if you start thinking like that, a lot of doors become uh, very interesting. So I started collecting doors with this purpose. <laughs> And in 1996, uh, I had uh, a solo exhibition at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. And we had, I, I don't know how much, but maybe 24, 30 cupboards around all doors. And a few of them became classics, like the Philips cupboard was originally with Philips windows. And now we produce the windows also. And it's a, it's a product which is in our collection since then. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting piece because I mean, you've written yourself, but it seems quite emblematic of your process you did discover when you found some Philips windows and then years later, when you had a CNC machine, you suddenly found a new way of, of making it. That's the oak glass window. That's a, ah, it's a different one. It's the same okay. time, the design of the same time. Uh, I don't think the oak was in the, in the window series because it was only glass I found. Right. But they actually, they have a parallel and similar history, but the oak cabinet, that's really a, storytelling about the company also because the the glass i found at the philips lumberyard also was the starting point for the design and because all the glass had the same size i had to adjust the way the cupboard is constructed to the glass which gives some very nice elegant and simple details but it's caused by the fact that all the glass sheets have the same size and uh, we run out of the glass and it was impossible to produce after that. And 10 years later, because of this router, what you mentioned, I started rethinking about it. And at that time, we found out that we had a huge discount on glass, like 80% or something. So all of a sudden, we could produce the product in a commercially interesting manner because the glass was cheaper. And we had this machine who could process it in a very efficient way. And we actually improved the cupboard at that moment. But it says something about the fact that if you design like I do for myself, for the same company, the knowledge and the design is available throughout the years. If you work organized like most designers and like our society is organized, so you design for another company and this company buys from another company materials, then you don't have like a holistic approach which means that it's always cut into pieces. So it's very much less likely that it comes together in an organic way. I always say we have like a big bowl with soup and we add all the time like ingredients and we change the heat and so on, but it's always there. So everything is available. And uh, because we have by coincidence, a company 
which started in 1990 and is until now. And everything we've done is here under this roof. So there's no knowledge gone. There is no materials gone. There is, uh, you know, everything is here. So also the employees are here who made it before. And this is actually also something, if you think about sustainability and environment, cutting processes in pieces and working all the time with different settings of companies and people, it takes a huge amount of energy from those people to actually create a process with an end result. And if you keep it together like an old-fashioned company, papa-mama company, then it works. So that's the same thing as we have our dealers and most of them we have our always the same dealer for the same country from the same city. So we collaborate always on the long term, which is much more efficient if you think about it. When you were coming up with a scrap wood table back in the day and with products subsequent to that, I mean, was sustainability an important element of your thinking? Yes and no. Not in the mm. way we think about so the, the current way of thinking about sustainability, I think, is a, a level too low. So, for example, you sit in a car, you drive a car, and then you make it electrical, which is still not... Uh, I, yesterday, I saw a car. This car is 100% eco-friendly or something. And I thought, that's not true. Electricity is for 40% made in Europe with coals, you know? So it's very dirty, but it might be in the future better, but it's not like 100% sustainable, not even a little bit, you know, electricity is not clean to make it. It's only not polluting in this machine. So then I get annoyed because it's much better to think about a way not to sit in a car. So at a certain moment during the seventies, everybody thought, well, freedom is the freedom where you live and where you work doesn't matter because uh, you, uh, uh, transport is no problem. And a lot of people live quite long distances from their work, which means that you pollute every day, also in an electrical car. So our solution is then to make it electrical, and I would say change this habit. Yes, there's a lot of talk about walkable cities, isn't there, increasingly. Yeah. So we'll see if that happens. I mean, I'm intrigued coming back to the, well, sort of coming back to the hotel and the sense of people being able to stay and kind of imbue your essence. And also there's a sense of transparency in the way that you work. And in the various publications that I've read of yours over the last week or so, you're very open about projects that went wrong. I mean, you talk about being taken to court. You talk about falling out with Nob, your business partner, the influence of your father-in-law. I mean, really quite touchingly, the death of employees and your reaction to it. There are quite a number of coffins in your portfolio, which I would suggest is kind of unusual. Can we talk about failure, though? It seems to be quite an important part of your process. Well, a hugely important part of your process. Yeah, maybe the communication about it is more open than most people do. But I mm. don't think I don't think people have less failures than or more than... Uh, no, the communication of failure, I think, is interesting. I think my failures are average to <laughs> or comparable to other designers and people. But sure, absolutely. The major thing about this is, uh, and that's uh, one of the things which I'm very much aware of in this growth, actually, each day, is that if something succeeds, our mind makes it a result of our effort. That's how people tend to think. And if something fails, it's always somebody else's fault or the world's fault. And that's strange because failures are much more common than success. So I tend to say that the success is, uh, you're lucky if you're successful and it's normal to fail. 
And if you approach it like that, I think the chance that you will be successful is much bigger because you recognize those two varieties much more clear. Because if the first thing you say is, if something fails, this is because of somebody else, you won't learn a lot about it. And if you think uh, this is a success and it is because of me, you don't learn about it either. <laughs> so I think to be honest to yourself about this kind of things, those two things, it helps you. And also mm. it makes life more easy, I think, if you accept mm. that failures are normal. So, and to communicate it, it's, it's a way for me to spread this idea that we shouldn't be, actually it's, you can say it's very hard for yourself or for others because you say, yeah, you're wrong or you do something wrong. And on the other end, by accepting it, it's not so bad. <laughs> It seems to be that uh, I, I feel different on this aspect than most people around me. It's becoming increasingly fashionable, isn't it, talking about failure? But I think you were doing it before others, possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, talking about it is one. But you have to... Uh, but maybe it's fashionable. But it's also a logic response to how we were thinking before. So mm. in that sense, that's also... You don't think... If I wouldn't have started with Scrap, would somebody else would have started? Because it was, it was the moment to do it. And I think with a lot of these things, is uh, it's not necessary that you're the, the first or new or I don't mind how you, you know, this is also not like an achievement. Just, just hanging on about the transparency thread for a moment, because it's important in your work as well, isn't it? It's important that people can see how the pieces are made. It has been always the thing we do. You know, we didn't change anything because from the start, I've always been communicating very open about everything. And if you do everything yourself from ID until the finished product, uh, then it's everybody can see that. So it's a mm. very open, natural process because if you come here, and that's also the reason why we wanted to create this space, you see the product in the showroom and you look down and you see how it's made, from which material, who it's making. You see the designer, that's me. I'm sitting here drawing. <laughs> so actually you see under one roof, the whole process from ID until finished product. And when I started, this was my idea. I wanted to produce and sell my own products. At that time, there was nobody thinking about transparency at all. The only thing which was, seemed to be important is produce very cheap, which is not possible in Europe, uh, you know, cheap production. But I wanted to do it in the end, of course, because people really love to understand the product and the process. It became important we grew into uh, this new situation where it is appreciated a lot. So the disadvantage in the beginning of expensive labor becomes an advantage now that people really like the idea that we make it here. We design and make our products here in Eindhoven ourselves. So the transparency of that became something which is important now because the world developed from only producing aware in low labor cost countries and as cheap as possible and without any transparency to uh, a wish to buy products and ingredients where you do know how and where it's made. But in 1990, nobody was thinking mm. about this and me neither. I just like to do it like the way I do. Yeah, yeah. Was it difficult splitting up with Nob in 2015? Yes, that's always difficult. And no, because it was necessary. We worked together at that time 30 years, so it was mm. a very long friendship, and it's 
still a friendship, which I'm very happy about. It was difficult because it was a friend, but it was also necessary because of the same reason. He was really unhappy. And uh, at a certain moment, I asked him, nope, I'm doing almost everything and you seem to do less and less. What, what should we do about it? Because this can't go on. And he said, yes, that's true, but I'm so unhappy. Mm. And at that time, we tried to change it, but it was impossible. The company grew in a direction and I grew in a direction and our relationship developed in a way that was not repairable anymore. And now uh, after like uh, almost seven years, I think, next year, seven years. So it took some time and now uh, now we're better friends than ever, I might say. But at least he's... Uh, um, he... he, he he found his own and new way after the split, and that takes time. That's, again, something, you know, if you ask after one week, how is it? Of course, it's shit. But after a few years, then it becomes better and better. Yeah. Can we talk about your background, Pete Hein? Your parents and grandparents were all teachers. Were you never tempted? Yeah, I like, I like uh, yes, I've tried at the Design Academy to teach one time for one trimester. And actually, it was wonderful. So, mm. <laughs> so I really loved it. But I never had the time afterwards. I actually feel now that maybe at this moment, I'm not able to do it like at that time. But maybe not. I have some problems at this moment with internees we got and so on. I stopped with a lot of internees because I, I didn't feel the connection anymore between the young people now. And then it's not in general, but on my... Working here, it's about like a professional attitude. That's interesting. So what's changed? So I don't say it's changed, but <laughs> in my experience over the last years, I couldn't get the students in my path, in my way of working. And I thought, and I think that if you have an internship or an interne, he or she should learn where I'm good at. You know, you're not go coming here for something uh, which is not something which is important here. So I always say to everybody, if you are an intern here, you should be open and willing to not be too much focused on concept and design, because I assume you're able to do that because that's your study, but more the process after it. So you have an idea and you learn how to realize this idea, because that's where we're really good at. There's a whole factory here. Everybody is able to think and help you to think about problems, help you. I'm good at that. So the focus should be after this idea, which is not important, how can you make this? And if you get into this process the way I try to get people in this process, you start thinking differently because you start understanding what, what, what it needs to get to a good product. And it doesn't mean this is the way to design, but at least it's my way and I can teach people my way. And I found out that uh, at a certain moment that a lot of the internees and students were looking at their laptop as if there was an answer in it. And I said, you don't need a laptop. You need to have an ID and then just think about how to make it or maybe turn it around, think about how to make something and have an ID. But, but stop seeing like the laptop and internet as a starting point for design because it's not at least not here and not in, uh, in in this internship and it became more and more difficult to get people from this attitude towards information so a lot of education or uh, institutes say you first have to get 
informed and then they start looking at internet and look at all the possible chairs and then the, but it ruins the creative process because you see what's already done and if you want to make something new it's not so clever to look at what's already done because the chance that you take some of those ideas is almost 100% because even if you don't know you've seen something you use what you've seen so I don't like this way of working so I stopped because I was not able to break through this habit. Were you a good student yourself? Were you good at school? Well, I was the rebel, huh? <laughs> but yeah. not, not, <laughs> not as a course. <laughs> well, there is a sense of you treading your own path. You know, going back, you, you showed with Droog in what's now considered that hugely influential show in Milan in 93, but your work was slightly different. I mean, you've said in the past you were keen to make products that actually worked, whereas maybe some of your contemporaries were interested in overtly conceptual design why did you decide not to hitch yourself to that particular wagon yeah we started with the the doors cupboards in a museum which was one of the first designer exhibitions in holland we also showed at art fairs our designs in a very early stage they had to discuss whether or not it was allowed at the art fairs is this is this art or is it design and should we allow it there's a change so we started actually on the path of art design or how you, I don't mind the word, but at that moment, it was not as clear as it, it became later that there was so much money to be made in this field and so easy. But I always saw myself as an industrial designer or maybe better, a manufacturer designer. So I wanted to make a collection as affordable as possible for as many people as possible. So I actually, I still focus on affordable products, although it's impossible in Europe, I think. I designed with the idea, if I do almost nothing, at least it becomes affordable. So (laughs) using as less hours and means as possible in order to make something which people could have, like the crisis collection and some ceramic lamps and the light collection is actually quite affordable. But at the same time, the world proceeded and we were sort of catched by it and uh, I made like the the, the, the scrap wood series which were to use as much possible hours which are expensive in order to throw away as less as possible material mm. which was worthless so you don't gain anything in that way and this became a quite an expensive series and it became very successful and then we added along this theme of exaggerating hours more and more products And now this is one of the major parts of the collection is the more expensive part. If you look at the turnover, the improvement in it is totally because of the highly expensive products. So you didn't hitch your ride with Droog because you were wanting to make at that time, not inexpensive, but affordable, practical products. That was your ambition. Yeah, and they didn't sell that well. Yes. They communicated a lot, but we had a contract which was called a sales contract. And I stopped it because they didn't sell. So I said, we have a contract and above it is sales, but you don't sell. So I stopped the contract. And then, of course, that this was not meant like that, but uh, they uh, approved. So I stopped because they were making a lot of publicity for Dutch design, but it didn't fit in my idea that I wanted to have design which actually sells and is made. Of course, a lot of design is in the world is communicated and everybody is talking and looking at it, but it's not selling. 
I was trying to get to make a collection which could be the starting point for a company with a production facility. Yeah. So I needed people to sell it and not to talk about it. <laughs> well, talking about companies that sell furniture, I mean, you've collaborated with other manufacturers. You've designed beautiful watches, clocks, speakers for Lef, which you've mentioned, for example, and you've created glasses and flat pack furniture. How do you decide who you're going to work with in those kind of projects? Normally, it's because there is a connection with an individual person. Right. As soon as I have a click with somebody, I actually don't mind that much about the company except when it's really wrong. But I like the idea of working with people. And that also means with the people uh, for whom I make a a design, so like a, a royalty design. So they make it, but I really think it's important that there is like an uh, a click an intellectual click with those persons so so it's is uh, that is that what happened with, with ikea yeah there uh, karen I, gustafson yeah, right? yeah yeah there i worked with karen and it was it was wonderful so yeah. we still app each other in, in, in uh, and uh, where we can we meet and uh, this is, has been a beautiful uh, friendship so yeah so, so it was just a personal thing it wasn't about getting your work into as many people's houses as you possibly could or combination of the two? No, no, no. It was really uh, Karen. But in the end, I learned uh, a lot about this uh, project with IKEA and also about our own way of producing and uh, what they do. And it was really nice to uh, to collaborate. And, and it's still open. Eh? So we have still have contact. So uh, probably uh, one day uh, there's a new design for IKEA, if we keep in contact. <laughs> <laughs> you said in one of your books that you got the sense that people in the Netherlands didn't really approve of you working with the Swedish company. You described it as a kind of chauvinism. What did you mean by that? Maybe it's in the translation, uh, because I, I read everything in English also, but sometimes the English is different from the Dutch. And I wrote actually this book in Dutch. I know that um, it was also one of my own problems or might have been, uh, it wasn't in the end. But IKEA, of course, produces very big. And uh, a lot of people think it's the footprint of what they do is uh, is wrong. I think the major problem with me working for IKEA is that I'm a designer making designer products on a very high level. And IKEA is a much lower level, people say, or level, at least the market they reach for is much lower or more affordable all over the world. So more democratic and mine is less democratic. And actually this has been one of my goals from the beginning. So for me, it was interesting to do it. And I don't know the chauvinistic thing. I recognize it a little bit. I should read it again in the book. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, I don't think there's a problem with uh, the Dutch having a problem with me designing for a a Scandinavian, for a Sweden. So so I don't think that's the problem. But there were a lot of things happening at that time. But uh, I felt it as a very positive thing. And we didn't have any problem uh, in the process either. You've worked in a panoply of different materials, aluminium, copper, PET bottles, ceramics, oak, rattan, glass, the list goes on. You own your own restaurant, a hotel. Is it frustrating that people think of you as a scrap wood guy? Because you prefer welding, right? I read that. You prefer welding and metal. Yeah, to do myself. Yeah, I like uh, if I have to (laughs) choose to work, I prefer to work with metal because, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's nice. I love metal, working with metal. First, I was a little bit scared and annoyed about the idea or about the fact that people, if they think about me, they think about scrap wood. But in the meanwhile, we've been working for almost 30 years, or at least 25. And 
I actually make with a lot of materials, a lot of different designs. So it doesn't stop me or prevent me from doing a lot of different things. And maybe even it helps me. So first I was annoyed because I was a little bit scared that people wouldn't accept the other work. And now I know that it gives me the platform to do what I want. So it's okay. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's not true, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other phrases that comes up a lot is your need to feel a fish in water. You describe it as you needing to feel, I guess, at home. And to extend that metaphor, I wonder if the studio you're now in is your perfect fishbowl. Yeah, this has actually to do with the story uh, we had about failure and success, which if you take it as a starting point, it's very difficult to improve. If you take failure and success as a starting point or, or as, a, as, a, as a way to uh, balance or to, to judge over people, it's difficult. But if you create an environment where people are happy and where they like to collaborate and where there's... Uh, nice goals and a good working environment, you know that the failures will be less and the successes will be more. So it's a way to be both more happy and more successful without knowing whether or not you are successful. You're never secured with this kind of things. Everything can happen, but at least it's the best possible starting point. So I always tried to create this world, which for me and the people around me, where everybody feels good. And that's, I think, that's the major goal. And then the rest will come. <laughs> that's a lovely, lovely, lovely place to leave it. Pete Hine, thank you so much for your time. I wish you every success in the future. Thank you. You too. And to discover more about Pete Hine's work, go to petehineck.nl. My huge thanks go to this episode's sponsor, AHEC. Discovered is on at London's Design Museum until the 10th of October do go and give it a look. It's also worth checking out its podcast all about the importance of forest and the timber industry. You can find Words on Wood on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the other usual places. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you'll receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. 